Welcome to Soundings Mindful Media Podcast. I'm Dudley Evanson, and for more than four decades, my husband Dean Evanson and I have created music and media that supports healing people and the planet. In our Soundings Podcasts, we share interviews with wisdom keepers we have met in the course of our life journey. To learn more about our activities and releases, please visit our website and blog at soundings.com. Well, I am um, happy to introduce you, (laughs) my dear friend Clyde Ford. I can't believe we've known each other 30 years. It really is amazing to realize how long uh, you've been kind of directing the wonderful Martin Luther King celebration that we've done so many times in Bellingham. It's really brought people together. It's been amazing. How did you? Um, yes, and it's bad that the, it's too bad that the pandemic <clears throat> has prevented us from proceeding with that event for the last couple of years. Yeah, well, it's been a um, it's been a time that we're th- we've been going through, yeah. and, <laughs> and as we read history, we realize it's been a time forever. And so, these are the things I want to uh, delve into today with you. Um, as we talk. Um, Well, first of all, I'm happy to introduce Clyde Ford. He's a best-selling author, award-winning author. I believe it's 14 books now, right? Are we up to 14 with the new one coming up? It's 14, yes. Yeah. So um, I first heard about you as an author when uh, Healing Water, your Healing Waters um, uh, came out. In fact, I have that. I'm like, Where Healing Waters Meet. I was digging through some of my books. Um, well, this is one <laughs> kind of a, a local fiction. And then um, this is one that's a really important book that a lot of people probably aren't even aware of is Hero with an African Face that you were inspired to write with Joseph. Uh, kind of, I guess you were inspired by Joseph Campbell's white man's <laughs> face that's been the hero. Um, but this is, of course, the book that we want to talk about right now, which is Think Black. And that is um, the book that you put out a couple of years ago. Um, and what a timely book, I will say. And I hope people have uh, had a chance to really uh, read it and understand it because uh, basically um, you were sharing a story of a personal story. And I remember um, talking to you as you were writing this and you were inspired to um I, I didn't know if you'd been not writing for a while or something, but you started to write a memoir. And this is such an important uh, memory for you and also for all um, Black people in terms of uh, the progress that has at least been begun to be made in, in baby steps. So maybe we could start out by kind of diving in a little bit to the book Think Black, a memoir by Clyde W. Ford. Uh, what uh, started, what got you inspired to write that book? Well, a couple of things. One, you're right, I had not written for a while. And in part, that was because the publishing industry had shifted so dramatically after the economic downturn in 2009. Amazon had become kind of the 900 pound gorilla. A lot of people were self-publishing, which is not a bad thing. But it just meant that there was a lot of books out there and um, the quality of many of those books was not really clear. I think New York publishers really weren't sure what they were going to be doing. 
And my agent called me and said, you know, things have changed. This was in 2016, 2017. New York's ready to buy books again. And uh, so I said, okay, well, I've got a book. And uh, it turned out to be um, uh, taken by HarperCollins, which has since become uh, my publisher. And um, I just love being there. Tracy Sherrod at Amistad Press, uh, which is the African-American imprint of HarperCollins, published the book. And it was just a real, it's been a really great experience. So that was one of the reasons. I think the other reason was, um, rather interesting. I just was kind of looking on the internet, really not with the book idea in mind. And I was on uh, Getty Images and I came across an image that I had never seen before. It was of my grandfather holding my father at two years old on his lap with my grandmother next to him my uncle and aunt on either side of my father. So I quickly copied it. I emailed it to my sister, Claudia. And I said, Claudia, have you ever seen this before? And she said, oh my God, no. Where did it come from? How did it get there? And so in part, researching how that image of my grandfather dressed in Hill's Pullman Porter uniform made its way to the internet, convinced me that it was now the time to tell that story. And I think the third thing that kind of factored into that was I had recently done a DNA test and that showed some really interesting, unexpected results. And because of that, all of those three things kind of, you know, coming together at the same time, it really felt like well, now's the right time to tell this story, a story really that I had been holding on to uh, ever since my father passed away in 2001. Uh, so I don't know if you want to talk uh, at this point about your experience when you went to West Africa and had that experience in the, in the slave porter portals uh, there, because that might have also been a, a key uh, moment for you uh, in relationship to the need to tell this story about your father? Sure. Well, actually, um, I think it was maybe not the instigating or the influence to tell that story, but it was part of the larger context of what it means to look back and to be aware of how those who have come before you have influenced your life. And so that experience in the slave castle in Ghana was really one in which I had a rather full-throated experience of um, being aware of those who had preceded me and what that might mean in terms of uh, my life and my career and how I moved ahead. And so in telling the story of my father being the first black software engineer in America, going to work for IBM in 1947, hired by the company in 1946, that story, what it means to connect with those who have blazed the trail and often uh, given their lives for that uh, forward movement, 
that story in West Africa really was one that kind of surfaced in telling the story about my dad. Also in Think Black, there is an actual practical um, experience of having been in that slave castle during a time at which my father and I were uh, quite um, uh, at some conflict. And I think I, I try to talk about that story in the book as well, too. It's actually one of the more thrilling or at least exciting chapters um, that, I, that I wrote because it was an opportunity to reconnect with a time in my life. I was only 16, but I had one of those experiences in real life that you often uh, look at in the movies in terms of uh, you know spy thrillers and things of that nature. Um, I had it actually take place. Well, so you you got to uh, really decide at that point um, when you were writing the book to de delve into your father's story, which is of such an important story in uh, America. And as we're so much has happened in the last few years with George Floyd's murder and the many other obviously horrible murders that have happened to black men mostly, but women too. And so what happened with uh, Black Lives Matter this these past few years has been really interesting because it's almost as if maybe we had time to to, to consider all this because we weren't so busy rushing around our in our in our regular daily jobs, we were home and we got to really pay attention to what was going on in the past uh, few years as far as uh, looking deeply. And I will say for myself and my husband, Dean Evanson, we've been watching a lot of movies um, that started to show up on Amazon and Netflix right around that time about Black lives and Black history and really the history of slavery in America and how uh, uh, the uh, enslaved people have really contributed so much to American society that has been overlooked. And there, I think, is, um, won't jump right to the next book, but uh, I think uh, being able to uh, delve into your father's story is very exciting uh, because you saw um, obviously he was a token black person who was hired there. So what did, what did you learn about your father and the whole relationship with IBM when you were uh, re doing the research for your book? Well, you know, that's a great question, Dudley. And first I really thought I was writing what I would call a Jackie Robinson feel good book. You know, <laughs> Jackie Robinson was the first black player to come to the plate as a major league baseball player. And um, he was hired by Branch Rickey, manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1945, but actually first at bat at Ebbets Field for the Dodgers was in April of 1947, not too long after my dad was hired by IBM. In fact, my dad was at that first game. So I really thought, well, this is a perfect analogy. Jackie Robinson being the first black player in the major leagues, my dad being the first black man and uh, as a, a computer software engineer. So that's how I started to craft the book. That's how I got the idea in my mind. I finished about half of the book and I showed it to uh, my editor, Tracy Sherrod at Amistad. Tracy said, you know, love what you're doing. You know, I think the writing is really strong, but I really don't understand who Thomas J. Watson is, that's the uh, CEO of IBM who hired my dad. 
And I think if I don't understand that, the readers won't. And I think everybody really needs to know who is this guy, Thomas J. Watson, and why did he hire your dad, a black man, in 1946? And I had to be honest with Tracy and said, you know, Tracy, I don't really have a great answer for you, but I promise by the time I've finished the book, I will know who Watson was, why he hired my dad. Wow, that is the kind of thing, Dudley, which you need to be careful about what you said in front of you as a task, because in discovering who Watson was and why he hired my dad, I opened a can of worms, Pandora's box, um, whatever you'd like to describe it as in a way that I just never expected. I worked for IBM as in the same capacity my dad did as a software engineer, as a systems engineer, but I had no clue of the history of the company that I was going to work for that my dad had worked for and the extent to which IBM was involved in the worst human rights abuses of the 20th century. Discovering that and discovering why they, IBM hired my dad was quite a revelation. Well, so the first question is, why did they hire your dad? Yeah, and really the answer to why they hired my dad is best understood in terms of the context of why and how IBM was involved in the wrong sides of all of these human rights issues. So I'll try to give you the short answer. And basically uh, in the late 1920s after IBM was created, uh, when eugenics, that pseudoscience of race was the rage, one of the big problems in the major eugenics studies was that there was so much data that they were trying to do, collect, to help them separate out who was purebred European, who was of mixed race and who was pure African. So they could basically eliminate anyone except the uh, purebred Europeans, so much data, they didn't have the capacity, that is the Eugenics Record Association and the other organizations studying this, they didn't have the capacity to maintain, collect, uh, compute statistics on that data. IBM came along and said to, to the Eugenics Record Association, we have the technology, this is late 1920s, that will enable you to collect as much data as you need to sort through it, do the statistics and give the reports that you need. Because of IBM's involvement in eugenics, the first studies, large scale studies of eugenics actually proved fairly successful. When the eugenics studies could not proceed because of World War II, IBM and in particular Watson saw this incredible opportunity to take that same technology to Nazi Germany. And so Watson worked with Hitler and worked with the uh, Third Reich in order to help them with their program to identify and eliminate Jews. Of course, that's essentially the same program or the same idea that, you, that he had used in the Eugenics Record Association study. And in fact, they used a very similar format for the punch card data that they collected. So now fast forward to the end of the war. And by the way, let me just say, IBM was involved in every, every, underscore that again, every aspect of the Third Reich. 
from the train schedules that transported Jews to concentration camps mm. to the maintenance of Jews in those concentration camps. You've probably seen the films where um, individuals in the concentration camps have numbers tattooed on their lower forearm. Those numbers were frequently connected to a punch card deck that was associated with the IBM room that existed at every concentration camp. I mean, IBM was just so deeply involved in the Holocaust and the Third Reich and the war on the side of the Nazis. It's hard to underestimate that extent. I mean, IBM planned German um, tank and troop movements, and they even scheduled Luftwaffe bombing runs. This is an American corporation. So come the end of the war, IBM has made millions, millions of dollars that are now in German banks. There is a procedure put in place by the uh, allied powers that if a company has made money from their connection with the Nazi regime. In order to extract that money, they must also pay reparations to the individuals, like the many number of uh, organization for Holocaust survivors whose lives were decimated by the Nazi regime during the war. Only problem was Watson didn't want to pay a cent of reparations. And so he did a number of things to divert public attention away from what his real goals were. So they would be focused on these pseudo goals and forget or not even realize that Watson was trying to make an end run around the allied powers in order to extract his money. One of the things Watson did was to hire uh, the first African-Americans, two of them, one in sales, uh, that was not my dad, and one in systems engineering, that was my dad, and also hire a number of Jews. Well, that was such big news that people focused on that news while Watson was really pushing ahead with what his goal was, and that was to extract all the millions of dollars he'd made from his dealings with Hitler and the Third Reich. Very underhanded, very devious, um, and again, it's one of those awful moments that unfortunately dots the history too frequently when we look at high tech and its relationship to human rights. This is horrifying information and people really need to know it. I, I think what's gonna, what is difficult for people is to recognize the, the atrocities that, that humans, white humans have, have made to black humans and, and people, other people of color, Native Americans as well, and Asians and so many, um, anybody different. And so um, I just feel like you're discovering this awful, terrible, unbelievable uh, uh, way that IBM collaborated with Nazi Germany during that period and obviously before in the eugenics um, experiments. It's it kind of leads into what we're all looking at these days about how um, there's a lot about our history that we don't know. There's a lot that white people have glossed over because we want, we, we, we want to feel good about our country. And I think what's, because I've been reading uh, the 1619 Project, and that's another uh, obviously very important book. Uh, 
that everyone should read because it's um, and and also it kind of is a almost prequel to your your new book that's coming out because I believe um, what you're uh, going to be what what they focus on what um, Nicole Hannah Jones focuses on in in bringing all these writers together is trying to like put together what really happened and what did black people do? Uh, what did these Africans who had been these enslaved people, uh, she doesn't call them, want to call them slaves because they weren't slaves, they were simply people and they were enslaved and they were very intentionally enslaved. And she talks about obviously the racism that existed during that period and on uh, probably forever, but it became more entrenched in this country. And I think it's gonna be real, real hard for Americans, modern patriotic Americans to accept this information because we wanna think that our founding fathers were all good guys and, and uh, even and not even many women, but just, so here we go. And now what you've done with your next book, um, which is called Of Blood and Sweat. And I appreciate that you don't say a blood, sweat and tears because it isn't like you're whining. You're not, you're not like crying. You're explaining uh, in your new book how America was built by the black community and enslaved people and how I, I, I look forward to reading it. And you could share a little bit about it because um, just we just need to respect that our country was uh, founded by um, a white European society, but that it was built and became wealthy and the South uh, Plantation South built on slave labor and, and slave, slave slavery in the North as well. And just so many compromises and strange politics and horrible Supreme Court decisions that continued uh, the oppression of black people uh, to this day. And so we're in a real pivotal time in our society where we're hoping to uh, make some transformations. And I'm really excited to have, um, to learn more about your next book. So would you like to share a little bit about uh, how you're um, framing things in that, in the new book that's coming out in April this sure. year, 2022? Sure, and, and I think the two, uh, both books are related in that in writing the book about my dad, the need for really understanding both the history of his time at IBM and the history of IBM's involvement in eugenics, Nazi Germany, then on to apartheid South Africa, and then on to the whole business of what's going on with facial recognition today, really helped me understand even more so that if we're going to understand what's taking place today, we have to understand the historical context. Unfortunately, in America, uh, we, I think, are all too in, enamored with Sam Cooke's line from that famous song, Don't Know Much About History. And we certainly, we kind of take some pride in not knowing about the past, as though if we don't know, it won't affect us. Uh, the truth of the matter is that's not the case. Uh, the more we do know about the past, I think the more we have the opportunity to reconcile with the, the present and the future. And that was really the idea behind the book of blood and sweat, black lives and the creation of white power and wealth was to look at right from the beginning. And I mean, from even before colonial America, uh, how was it, what was it and how did it take place uh, that particularly Africans and other peoples of color became the 
basis for the economic, political, social, agricultural, medical institutions of power and wealth that are generally presumed to be um, in the hands and at the creation of uh, white Americans or white Europeans. But in fact, those institutions were either created by people of color or created to control people of color. And so the book really starts in the 1500s, well, even further back than that, the 1400s in pre-colonial West Africa, particularly the Angola Congo region, and tries to tell the story from there till shortly after the Civil War. And for me, it was really important not to tell a dry historical tale. In other words, not just to recite facts and dates and people, but to give that story some life by identifying individuals that we could identify and maybe even tracking and following their lives. And so when I can, I do uh, identify individuals whose lives actually in some way uh, reflect the times that they were living through and their contributions to uh, the making and creation of wealth in America. So in the beginning of the book, for example, Dudley, I tell the story of um, Anthony and Isabella, uh, two uh, individuals we know who were on that first ship that uh, anchored in 1619 off of Point Comfort in Virginia, later got married and later actually parented or gave birth to the first black child born on colonial American soil. And their story, which is a fascinating story because the descendants of that child actually still live and exist today in, in Virginia. Um, but it's a fascinating story because it told, tells the story of the creation and enactment of slavery today. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to tell that story through the eyes of the individuals that were affected by it. You know, the one thing I think Americans don't understand and probably don't want to, under, many don't want to understand is that slavery wasn't a fait accompli. In other words, that ship, the uh, White Lion that arrived off of Virginia in, in 1619, uh, the 22 uh, black men and women who were rowed ashore were not dropped into an already existing system of slavery. It's not the way it happened. In fact, when they came on shore, most of the people in colonial Virginia were scratching their heads in terms of what do we do now? And there were many potential answers to that question of what do we do now that we are no longer a homogenous white society. They'd already determined what they were or weren't going to do with Native Americans. And the idea was, um, the more we can round up and either drive off or kill, the better. The question then became, what do we do with Africans in our midst? And it was really over time that the decisions were taken that American society, colonial American society, would establish a system of slavery. It didn't exist 
when those first people of color came ashore from Africa. But 40 to 50 years after that time, it did exist. And it seems to me we learned something about how we make decisions in this country when we look at how slavery was created that have a profound impact in the history, but also in the present day as well, too. And that's really what I wanted to try to draw out in the book is, you know, how did that happen, for example, early on? How did we move from a colonial society, which was more a society of indentured service to a society which separated out indentured servants who were white from enslaved individuals who were either um, Africans or uh, Native Americans? Learning that, knowing something about that says a lot, a lot about the roads not taken by American society, those roads still not taken to this very day when there's an opportunity to take those roads. I mean, obviously one of those roads could have been a road that led to a shared burden of what it meant to be on this American soil where there was no separation, no daylight between uh, indentured servants who were white and indentured servants who were black. In fact, in the very early days, probably the days when those first Africans stepped off a road ashore or war road ashore, that was the society that existed. There were indentured servants who were black and white and there was the moneyed uh, planter class who treated the indentured servants pretty poorly. Eventually, that two-tiered society was segmented and segregated into a three-tiered society. At the top, you had the moneyed, wealthy planter class. Beneath them, you had the white laborers helping them to make money. And beneath them, you had Africans, people of color, Native Americans, who were driving the economic engine as well. And the sad, sad, sad thing is those white indentured servants kind of in the middle there felt good about who they were because they could always look back and say, at least we're not being treated like people of color. And that equation, that equation still exists to this very day where because there is a marginalized group in America, those who are not even part of the elite and the powerful class still consider themselves fortunate because they're not part of that marginalized group and therefore are ready and willing and capable of voting against their own self-interest to support the interests of the powerful. And I just thought it was really important to tell that story from the beginning, where it started, to look at the decisions that were made that really separates this society out in the ways that we're struggling with to this day. Well, a couple of things come to mind. Uh, one is uh, the benefit that uh, of you presenting uh, the personalized story of, of people. So, you know, because often you see big swashes of people of this and that group. Um, and so I, I really am excited about that. And I think that's going to be super helpful. But I also um, see the, you know, what from what I've also been reading about how the, um, the white uh, indentured servants and the black 
uh, enslaved people, uh, early on they made the decision that the, the, even though the white indentured servants eventually had their bought their freedom through their labor, um, the black uh, enslaved people never were able to do that. And then in addition, their children and their children's children ended up being owned by the the the, in, the slaveholder holders. Um, so uh, it just it just gets um, it's it's just going to be a real hard time for people to kind of work through this. We've just got to, I believe, the white uh, community, uh, I pray that we can open our hearts and uh, listen with our, our soul to this information that's coming out now, because it's, you know, we, we, we feel like we're making progress. And I do believe progress is being made, has been made. And I think probably this country is the place where it can happen. Uh, but there's so much struggle and there's so much resistance. So we're just um, at a real interesting time in our history. And I think uh, we just have to keep pl plugging along with the kind of work that you're doing. And so many other people in this field are uh, really doing what they can to uh, really look deeply into our uh, collective guilt, and our white guilt. And, um, you know, we're just going to have to uh, look at it and face it. And I do believe that each generation that comes up has a little bit more uh, strength of character that can accept the fact that I am benefiting from me personally, I'm benefiting from um, the historical uh, work that Black people have done to build this society. Uh, and and uh, we just need to figure out a way to, to share, to give back. There's just so many um, questions I have and people of, like me. I mean, I just recently discovered that I am a, I believe 16 generations um, from the Mayflower, literally. You know, I had a, two ancestors who came in the Mayflower. They actually married each other. And so my uh, lineage is I am a, col a colonialist. I'm a colonizer in that way. Although my people were coming to um, uh, search or seek uh, uh, safety from religious persecution. So that was, we weren't coming. We didn't think we were colonizing. We just were coming to, I mean, I guess a colony was the word, but we were coming to, to make a better life for ourselves. And then, you know, we worked with the Indians who helped us survive that first winter. And then we know the rest of what happened. I think during my ancestors' uh, lifetime, the original ones, there was peace with the Native American tribes. But after that, it, it quickly fell into disarray. And, and, and we all know very well what happened to the Native people who were already here. And then as we've been learning, as we study uh, about the black lives and the uh, enslaved uh, people who built this country, uh, we're learning so much more that we need to reconcile with. So I just, I guess I came across a book. Um, it's an older book that you wrote. What can, what can all, we can all get along uh, 50 steps you can take to help end racism. I think it was a book you wrote a while ago and I ordered it uh, just because I, what can I do? You know, how can I as a white person who is um, obviously uh, indebted to my, uh, my black ancestors <laughs> in a way, um, how can I, what can I do? How can I help? And uh, I guess that would be a, a, something I would love to um, have you share. Mm-hmm.
Sure. I think what are some of, what are some opinion. of those 50, 50 steps we can take to help end racism? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that book was published so long ago that some of those steps are, are no longer valid simply because the technology has has moved on so quickly. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, when I think of what's going on today, I think one of the most important things that people can do is to insist that the truth of history be told and to resist this crazy, idiotic moment where you've got people like the governors in Indiana and Ron DeSantis, the governor in Florida, signing bills which say uh, that uh, criminalizing actually the uh, instance of a teacher teaching about history in such a way that a student might feel embarrassed or guilt. That, that is so crazy. And this whole notion of critical race theory which, by the way, is not even a historical theory. It's a legal theory created in the 1970s at Harvard that an individual in Seattle, actually a right-winged individual, realized, God, this is a really good uh, kind of catch-all to use as a wedge issue in order to really pursue the culture wars. So I have to say at the heart of this whole idea of critical race theory is a fallacy because critical race theory really has nothing to do with the teachings of accurate historical truth. So we can insist on the teachings of historical truth as they are, not as we would like them to be. That's a great first step. We can vote into office people who are not willing to go forward with these crazy notions of, I don't wanna know about history. I only want the version of history uh, where George Washington cut down a cherry tree. Uh, Jefferson, uh, Thomas Jefferson was this really, really good guy and Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. I mean, that is such a ridiculous and untrue version of history. It may be convenient for Americans to have, but it doesn't speak to what actually took place. So. One of the most important things, look, Dudley, if we're talking about the need for reconciliation, you can't have reconciliation unless you first have truth. That's why these committees are called truth and reconciliation committees. They're not called make up, uh, you know, misinformation about the past and reconcile that. They're called truth and reconciliation. You got to have truth if you're going to have reconciliation. And that is, I think, such an important first step. So anybody can do that. You can do that at your local school board if you're a parent. Uh, you can do that at the voting bo box or ballot box when you're voting in uh, the next person to represent you in office. It really, really, really makes a difference. We only have to look at the attack on voting rights, the which is being pursued by exactly the same people who are pursuing these crazy ideas of critical race theory and recognize that this is the impediment to the progress that needs to make to take place. Telling the truth is never gonna hurt anybody. Telling the truth may be difficult to hear, um, but I have a belief that most people have the capacity to listen to difficult things because that's the only way you change. You don't change if everything is copacetic and nice. You change because things are uncomfortable and you want to figure out a better way of being. So telling the truth, incredibly important. Along with that, what you teach your children, what you allow your children to hear, what you discuss with your children, incredibly important as well too. Raising young people 
who refuse to accept the ridiculous notions that their you know, elders put forward like these crazy bills, I'm really heartened when I see and hear young high school students standing up against these laws which target critical race theory. Again, I almost hate using that term because it, there's no truth to the idea that teaching about African-American history has anything to do with teaching critical race theory. Again, critical race theory is a legal scholarly idea, has nothing to do with teaching about the truth of what really you know, Thomas Jefferson did or what was really in the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, those are the inconvenient truths that I think we need to address. That's why I wrote the book, uh, both the book about my dad, because there's inconvenient truths about IBM and its history, but even larger, why I wrote the book of Blood and Sweat, Black Lives and the Creation of White Power and Wealth, because there are a lot of inconvenient truths in the history of America that if we're able to accept and understand and face, I think there's the potential to move beyond those truths to some degree of reconciliation. So in any ways that you can think about it, the steps that you can take that related to listening to the truth, telling the truth, exposing young people to the truth, and standing up against those who do not want those truths to be told, well, that is a whole lot. Those are great steps that need to be taken. And they, in and of themselves, will bring about um, a context for which healing and reconciliation will happen. Thank you so much. Uh, and I appreciate you saying healing and reconciliation because um, you, I first knew you as a healer. You were, that was your, you know, you would be, you were doing chiropractic and psychotherapy and you were discovering, you were working on emotional healing. Um, and it just, to, to take this into such a deep uh, topic as far as uh, race relations, but also just in terms of critical race theory, um, I guess to me, it's just sort of a catch-all, but it also is just um, what I, the biggest thing I'm learning and my biggest takeaway as I've been studying this and watching a million movies about, um, about it um, is that our country was built on the backs of uh, enslaved people and um, people of color and that unfortunately they did not receive much benefit or hardly any at the time. And so I, I'm thinking a little bit lately about lineage and, and uh, um, bloodlines, not, not bloodlines, but just my family, your family, our, they go back in history. So what are we, um, but, it, but it improves each, each bit of time and we wake up each moment. I remember in the sixties having arguments with my parents about, you know, anti-war or, you know, segregation or civil rights and things like that. And they, they just, my father literally had a, an opinion that black people were inferior genetically. And I'm like, okay. So that was what he grew up with. Um, but he was, grew up in Ohio, but still, you know, that was just the way it was. And so it took him a while, but he did grow. And he, at one point, my parents said, well, I'm too old. We're too old to learn. Well, we're too old to to change or something. And I thought that's just a sad thing to say, but, um, but they did, 
they did eventually uh, wake up somewhat, not completely, but I will say that, you know, I just want to have, I want to I want us to have some kind of a sense of hope and particularly for um, uh, black people and people of color to know that, you know, we're moving, we're, we are making some progress, we're moving forward. And uh, this is, the struggle is, is ongoing. It's not going to um, just go away and we're suddenly going to say, hey, we did it. It's, it's something that each generation has to tackle and each generation gets to deal with a different set of um, parameters and uh, hopefully build um, in, uh, improvements on the past. Unfortunately, there are a lot of snafus along the way because there's just been some, as I say, those horrible um, Supreme Court decisions. And that's why <laughs> Supreme Court is pretty darn important because it interprets the law according to the times typically and the times do change. So thankfully, um, Anyway, we still need <laughs> we still need to keep going. So, what what else can we do? Yeah, and, and one thing I want to point out, Dudley, is everything you said is true, but everything you said really has nothing to do with critical race theory. Okay, critical race theory is not history. Critical race theory is a legal theory created by Derrick Bell at Harvard in 1977, mm -hmm. which looks at the underpinnings of the legal system in the United States. Hmm. That is not the same thing as talking about how African-Americans contribute to the power and wealth in this country, which they don't share. That, okay. It's just not. Critical race theory is one thing. And the extent, and that's why I try not to use that term, because I don't want to give it the power that it has extracted from the discourse on race, race relationships, and healing. Critical race theory, as most right-wing white Republicans present it, is a lot of hooey because it's not what they want you and their constituents to believe it is. Critical race theory, again, it's a legal theory created by Derrick Bell, 1977 in Harvard. It is not what Ron DeSantis signed into law. It is not what the governor of Indiana signed into law. Those things are attacks on the truth they have nothing to do with what critical race theory is. Okay, so critical race theory then is more about how the um, uh, degradation or, or elevating white people and putting black people down, I'm not saying it quite right, but- No, uh, critical race- Is, is, is built, race it's built into the constitution. It's built into our legal system. It's built into our laws. It's built into our interpretation. Now, yes, it is It is. <laughs> it is legal basis for, yeah. which looks at the American legal system and its relationship to enslavement. That is critical race theory. Stop. You got to stop there. That's the end all and be all of critical race theory. Now, does that have something to do with history? Of course it does. But is African-American history critical race theory? Absolutely not. And that's an important distinction that no one is making. I'm writing a book about the way, uh, my book is coming out in April about the ways in which African-Americans have contributed to white power and wealth in this country. Does that mean my book is about critical race theory? Absolutely not. I'm not a legal scholar. And that's a distinction that I will continue to make over and over and over again, because the other side of this discussion wants us all to be able to have a term that we can throw everything into and think we understand it and then rail against it. Critical race theory, again, is just a legal theory 
about how the laws in this country were based on the enslavement of people of color. That's one discussion to have. The more important discussion to have, which is the one you spoke about really, is how does history impact us today in a way that we can build on what we know about the past in order to reconcile ourselves with this present moment and move forward into a better future. That's an important, it's not even a theory, it's an idea about how people make progress. Does it have to do with critical race theory? Only if we're talking about it in the legal realm. If we're talking about it economically, if we're talking about it socially, educationally, politically, no, it has nothing to do with critical race theory. Except that, uh, not contradicting you, but the fact that um, our social and our uh, other aspects of our lives and all the different things, they feed into it. And those laws were continued. They were, they were begun very consciously to keep black people in in their place and elevate white people and and they have continued and there have been all sorts of insidious laws that that show up in each generation just as you're saying this ridiculous law trying to stop people from teaching whatever they want to call it but that kind of thing so it's just sure sure i mean and the intersection of all of these um important areas of human endeavor and human life that is obviously true. I just want to make sure that we don't decide on adopting terms that have been chosen for us by those who are not interested in the kind of progress that we would like to make. I don't want to adopt the term that Ron DeSantis adopts simply because he signed the law. I don't want to adopt the term that Donald Trump thinks is the right term because he's opposed to the 1619 project. I don't want to degradate Derek Bell's original idea, which is an important legal idea about critical race theory by somehow diluting it with all of the history of African-Americans and people of color. It just ain't the case. And that's, I think, a really important distinction that not a lot of people are making. They simply say critical race theory and they think they either understand everything it means or they're against it because the guy they respect has said it's a bad thing. And that is the kind of sloppy thinking which doesn't allow for us to move forward in the right way. I am so glad that you're clarifying that for me and for anyone listening. So then um, how would you, is there some kind of a, a, a term? I mean, right now, what I'm, I'm hearing about your new book and, and just a lot of what 1619 uh, Project does discuss is how uh, the, many, the, the many accomplishments that have uh, made us a successful nation are because of the Black uh, labor forces. So how would you describe that concept? Because that seems to me that that's where, what we do need to focus on and honor and respect and then somehow um, recompense, I guess, in some way. Well, I, it's pretty easy. I describe that concept as simply telling the truth about the past. It's just telling the truth. Look, by me saying that um, Thomas Jefferson used the, the enslaved people that he had as collateral for the mortgage and debt that he had. I'm not 
putting forth some theory. I'm simply going back to the records and reading what Jefferson wrote himself. That is a historical truth. Now, we can certainly have a vigorous debate about what that means, but the fact that Jefferson wrote it is a truth that you cannot get around. He wrote it. That is not a theory. That is simply a telling of the truth, and I think that's an important truth to tell. The fact that Abraham Lincoln did not free one slave under his control may be an inconvenient truth to tell, but I didn't create that. You simply need to go back to the Emancipation Proclamation and read it. And if you read the Emancipation Proclamation, what you read is that the only um, enslaved people that Lincoln declared to be free were those held by the Confederate states who did not recognize Lincoln's authority. So slavery was outlawed in Mississippi, but it was okay in Massachusetts after the Emancipation Proclamation. That is a historical truth. It's not a conjecture. Now we can have a vigorous debate about what that means, but I'm not going to debate what's written in the Emancipation because you can read that. An inconvenient truth, the fact is that African Americans, after they, after we were uh, relieved of the burden of being enslaved people, were actually granted reparations by the Congress of the United States. And within done. a few years, the reparations that were granted were taken away. That's a truth. You can go to correct the congressional records and read that. You can read the, 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 the debate that took place over that. I think we ought to have a discussion, uh, and we don't have to all agree, but we ought to have a discussion on what that means. But you can't debate whether it happened or not because it's right there in the records. That's what I mean about telling the truth. It's not a theoretical idea. It's not an ideological idea. It happened or it didn't. And you can go to a source which identifies that it happened. Having a debate on that, I think it's a healthy thing to do. I don't have any problem with debates, but I think starting with the truth is incredibly important. And as we all know today, uh, the truth is a commodity that most people think is a little fungible. I don't believe that, um, but a lot of people do. The truth can hurt, and I think that might, might be the resistance. It can, and so it's a lot. It's it's a lot easier not to tell the truth, or at least to tell the version you would like not to hurt, than it is to tell what actually happened. Well, just just the idea of of my poor my poor little white children being having their feelings hurt or feeling bad in some way that they would have to read about a little black girl who had to, who is integrating a, a school or was having rocks thrown at her or something like that. It's just like a kind of, there's such an irony there that people even think that way. So we have a lot to learn yes. in, in our lives and in our society yes. and uh, as all races. And so I really wanna just thank you again for all the work you've done all your life and all these fabulous books you've written and, and just really, really digging at the truth and, and getting into it and what you discovered in Think Black um, about um, the IBM's eugenics work and that just is horrifying again. 
uh, we're all sh looking at things today that we're concerned about. So we need to pay close attention to what's going on in our lives and what we sign up for or don't sign up for and uh, pay attention and protect voting rights and uh, do all the things that will help to um, keep us going forward and see if we can help make this place a better world. I think, I know that's why yeah. I feel like I was born. I think that's why you were born. We're here to help in the best way we can. So um, anything else you'd like to share before we sign off? <laughs> Thanks. No, I just want to say thank you, Dudley. It was a great opportunity to talk about both Think Black and my next book, uh, Blood and Sweat, Black Lives and the Creation of White Power and Wealth. And I look forward to our next conversation sometime soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our Soundings Mindful Media Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this program. To learn more about our music, guided meditations, books, and videos, please visit our website and blog at soundings.com. Peace through music blessings.